questions today. I'm going to read the first two together because I think they're connected. The first is, I have been noticing and practicing the difference between being with and looking at experience. However, I was wondering what does it mean and how do we practice meeting experience in the context of this style of practice? And the second question, you often speak about being curious about an object or feeling. This implies investigation. Please give an example of how you would go about this. It thing seems like too much. It seems like too much thinking to investigate. So I think of meeting experience being very similar to being with experience. Uh, when I use the language meet our experience, I mean something very similar to what I say in being with experience. And yet I think maybe the context or the framing of meeting experience has a little more sense of maybe landing more fully with something, investigating a little bit. And so that's why I joined it with the second question, which talks about investigation. First, I think I'll say a little bit about just being with experience as being a kind of investigation. As I was talking about this morning, the, um, the kind of natural curiosity of a child or a baby, they don't think about their experience. They're just absorbing it. They're just with it. And uh, kind of learning happens as they steep in their experience. And so um, a sense of investigation of experience is not so much about figuring something out, but more about the curiosity about what is mindfulness willing to reveal about the experience in this moment. And so we might investigate a particular habit or pattern of mind. Maybe a frustration or anger or anxiety. And each time it arises, we notice what's there. We, if possible, We try to be with that experience of anxiety or frustration, whatever it is. And in that being with, certain things are are revealed. Certain aspects of experience are revealed. 
it's not like we're trying to pick it apart or figure it out. It's more like we're holding it with open arms and seeing what's willing to come to the surface and be known. And so this kind of investigation takes patience. The word investigation probably has the connotation of figuring out or thinking about. That's why I like to use be curious or be interested in. Again, kind of from this perspective of being a child who is just naturally curious. They don't have an agenda in their curiosity. It's curiosity for the sake of just kind of taking it in. And with a investigation of a particular pattern, anxiety or frustration, you know, particular ones that we have a lot, patterns that happen a lot, we have no lack of opportunity for them to appear and notice what's available to be noticed in them. And so each time it appears, we open our sense of what's available to be known, we meet that, we get maybe some little piece of the picture, some aspect of this anxiety. Maybe this time it's um, some way that it lands in the body and we see something about it. Maybe next time we see how it's connected with a belief about who we are. Maybe the next time we see something about how it conditions us to um, uh, look for certain reinforcement in our experience. So each time we get a little bit of different information about the pattern. We don't have to figure it out in this investigation. We don't have to come up with the answer. We're looking just at what's here to be known and the, the curiosity or the perspective of the interest of just, this is what's happening in this moment. That, that curiosity seems to uh, create the conditions for some deeper understanding to appear the deeper understanding about, in particular, how this is suffering, how it comes to be, how it falls apart. We don't particularly have to know the details of why, based on our history, this particular pattern comes to be, though that may be revealed as we hang out with our experience. At one point in investigating my, um, my own self-hatred, I began to understand, just by watching in the present moment, how it was connected to particular patterns from history. 
relationships from history. It wasn't that I was digging or trying to figure it out. It was more along the lines of just being with the experience of self-hatred and then seeing thoughts from history kind of come in and uh, mix it up with that self-hatred and recognizing, oh, that's some of where it came from. And so sometimes, just as we hang out with a pattern, things like that are revealed. And yet sometimes they're not. I've had other patterns vanish just through the willingness to kind of acknowledge them and set them aside. One particular pattern, that was all I could do with it for a long time. That's the source of my not now instruction, you know, bow to it and say, you can stay in the room with me, but I'm going to pay attention to something else. For years, for a couple of years, I worked with a particular pattern that way. It was a strong pattern, and my mindfulness, whenever I turned to that pattern, it seemed to suck me into it, and so I just kept doing this not now over and over again. But each time I met it a little bit, just a, I see you, I see you, yes. It's like I bowed to it every time. And um, I thought I was at some point going to have to really bring the investigative mind to that pattern and figure it out, understand it. And, you know, it just kind of got weaker and weaker and disappeared without my ever looking at it directly. After a couple of years, I saw the pattern appearing less frequently. And then one day I recollected it hasn't happened in a while. I wonder what happened to it. And it was gone. And so investigation can take different forms at different times. But the key Exploration is just what's willing to be seen here and now. What can mindfulness meet with this experience? Keep it simple. It's a challenge to keep it that simple sometimes because our sense of self wants some kind of congratulations or you figured it out or, you know, something. It wants it wants some kind of... Uh, sign or symbol or proof that we're doing it right or we're getting the right answer or something. And so even this form of investigation, our sense of self has to take a back seat because investigation happens on its own time, in its own way, and not on our agenda. And so this is a very humbling practice. It's humbling to uh, watch just to receive, allow, and learn where that learning is more like it's just being absorbed than something we're thinking about or thinking through.
And then I just barely touched on this one, so I'll follow with this question. You spoke about turning away from things that are difficult and beyond our capacity to deal with. Could you elaborate, that is, how to turn away, when to come back, etc.? So I do often say that if some particular experience is, I I sometimes think of it, uh, the momentum of some pattern or habit creates a, like a tsunami, a tidal wave of reactivity. And our mindfulness at times is more like a trickle. So it's like we're swamped by the the reactivity. And our mindfulness just not, it doesn't have the capacity to, to stay present. That tidal wave just overwhelms the trickle of mindfulness. I use the phrase, we go down the rabbit hole or get into quicksand. So if we see that trying to relax, receive, allow, and learn doesn't cut it. And it doesn't. There are times, definitely times, where that simple practice is not sufficient because the mindfulness uh, is is, uh, no match for the power of the reactivity. So if you see that you are overwhelmed by a particular reactive pattern, that is the time to set it aside, to turn to something else. I often suggest in this case, I think I said this the other day, but if not, I'll repeat it or or say it now. Um, I find it helpful to turn to something neutral in that time, some kind of neutral experience. Partly because, at least my own mind, um, feels like if I try to turn to something pleasant or like turn to metta if I'm overwhelmed by reactivity, the reactive part of my mind kind of uh, bristles with that. You know, you're, you know, you're trying to cover me up. You're trying to paper me over and... And somehow just turning to a neutral experience, that reactive part of the mind is more willing to let that happen. And so it's, uh, it's the, and I actually like to suggest that you find or have some neutral tool available, kind of at hand, ready to pick up when, uh, experience is taking us down the rabbit hole. It, there's a lot of different possibilities there. And, you know, I'm, I, I can't enumerate them all. There's so many different ones. You know, taking a walk in nature, opening your eyes, um, paying attention to the field of hearing, um, doing that useless gazing, putting attentions in hands, something for you that grounds you that allows you to uh, not be, that, that allows you to, to let go of that reactivity and not put attention in it. 
I often do not recommend using the breath at that point. Because very frequently the um, reactive emotions have a strong uh, impact on the area between our throat and our intestines, just in this kind of area. The viscera kind of tighten up and that impacts the breath. And so if you're having a very strong reactive emotion and trying to pay attention to the breath, sometimes it just reminds you of that reactivity because the breath is tight and it's catching and you know, you're trying to breathe full and deep and it's like <sighs> and, and uh, you're not really able to just let the breath be a neutral object. And so uh, I actually recommend not paying attention to anything in the torso area when there's a strong reactive emotion. Picking something on the periphery <laughs> of your experience or visual field or auditory field. In terms of when to come back to it, um, you know, this is something you can just play with. Uh, you know, it's a... Uh, it can happen in many different ways. One is that um, you set it aside for a period of time and just put your attention elsewhere and it kind of fades in the background and is no longer so predominant and so there's nothing to come back to in that time. It will probably arise again if it's a familiar pattern. And, you know, each time it arises, we have an opportunity to check in, you know, can I be with this this time? Or maybe we explore the possibility of seeing if I can be with it, open to it for a short time, maybe a few seconds before shifting away to a neutral experience almost like building up the capacity to meet the experience. You could, if it's something that's going on for a while, if you find that, um, you know, you're setting it aside and looking at something neutral, uh, but it's still kind of there in the room with you, you could occasionally just uh, say hi Ah, I see you're still here, okay. And, uh, you know, touch into it and then step away again. That kind of begins to, to kind of touch in and step away. That's a, this is a something that's used in the um, field of somatic experiencing to help particularly around trauma that you, uh, to, you, you gather your resources, you strengthen your capacity to meet experience by stepping away from it. And then you come touch in just for a few moments and then move back. And this gives you this, the confidence that you're not, that, that you're not necessarily gonna be pulled into the quicksand each time you meet it. So you, you know, touch into it and then step away from it touch into it, step away from it. Each time you may be able to learn just a little bit about that reactive pattern.
I usually like to encourage people to um, to explore the possibility of meeting a challenging pattern, sometimes from our um, uh, other practices or um, habits of practice, we find, oh yes, okay, that that reactive pattern, that's a defilement, so I shouldn't engage with that, so let me, you know, do go to metta or do something else. And so we um, lose the opportunity to cultivate the strength of meeting it. And sometimes we move away quickly, a little more quickly than we need to. And so give yourself the opportunity to see if you can meet an experience. You can meet an experience and notice you, you might even notice that uh, you're caught by it, that there's aversion to it, or frustration, or some sense of this is a problem. You may be able to just know, okay, yes, that's happening, and I'm caught by it. If you can hang out there, knowing that, without the pattern spiraling out of control, that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be the perfectly balanced mindfulness. There was one period of time where I was exploring depression in my practice. And, um, you know, just exploring a lot about it, curiosity about how it arose, how long it stayed. And I began to recognize that there were times when I was just simply able to observe the depression and other times where I was really like mired in it and yet still able to be aware. It was like I believed the depression. I believed it was a problem somehow. And yet I could know that. It's like, oh, depression's happening and I'm caught by it. There was enough balance of mind to be able to hold that. And then I just began watching this kind of fluctuation between depression being there, being caught by it. The caught part would fall away because I was just able to be with that and, oh, it's just depression now. And just, oh, it's, this isn't a problem. It's just sensations and the mind in a low energy state. This is all that's happening. And the caught would come back. No, this is a problem. And then the caught would fall away. And then every now and then the de depression would just vanish. So kind of watching this cycling between these three states, depression present or absent. And when it was present, was I caught by it or not? It's a very simple kind of exploration. Not a lot of digging about, okay, you know, let me look at how it makes my body feel. It's just like, yeah, this is depression, okay. In a very general way. This is depression and being caught by it. Oh, problem. Just this feeling of problem. And this is the absence of depression. So again, the curiosity of can you meet a pattern and watch, watch it unfold? Learn, learn from it. 
I think I'll actually continue what I learned there because it points back to that a question around learning and investigation and kind of just patience with being with experience. Um, so this was a couple of weeks of watching this depression. I was at Shweyumin in Burma practicing with Sayadaw. And um, at one point watching those three fluctuate, you know, I was like, it was so rapid. I was like, oh, depression, oh, caught, oh, depression, oh, it's gone, oh, it's back. Oh, it's gone. Oh, it's back. Oh, God, it's a problem. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> just like, wow, you know, who's depressed anyway? It's just this rapid fluctuation of mind states, kind of poking a hole in the identity of someone who is depressed. It was so rapid. And feeling into the experience of, uh, you know, the heart the heaviness of the heart uh, it had felt like a pretty constricted heart around the depression. And uh, after this time of seeing this rapid alternation of, uh, of depression, non-depression, and caught by depression, that was in a walking period. And I went back to my room to do some practice in the still posture. And as I was doing my lying meditation, I, um, I felt the depression. It's like I was there completely because it was like, I think because the, the idea that it was any problem at all to have this depression coming and going, there was no resistance at all when the depression arose. And the feeling of depression, that heaviness of the heart, it's just like it got so big. There was no resistance. It was just like, oh, depression's like this. And it's like just this expansive feeling of heaviness and just, just this big, vast field. And then somewhere in the middle of watching that, it was like the experience turned inside out and became a vast field of love. beautiful mind state. And in the next moment, the thought that went through my mind was, this is stupid, this is sappy. And I saw that I had, I mean, that, that gave me the understanding, and it's, it, I have to articulate it here, but it wasn't, it wasn't the thought, it wasn't that I thought about it, but it gave me the understanding that there was a connection between a kind of a belief in this feeling of the beautiful open heart and it being like some stupid thing, a kind of a resistance to that feeling of love that was where the depression was coming from a kind of a tamping down on the heart to not allow it to fully open. That was not what I expected to find in the middle of depression. If anything, I had some story about, you know, being a child and, you know, being on the playground and kids not liking me and not having friends. And, you know, it's like this big story that was like in the background. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I see the beliefs. I see that, you know, let's just be with the feelings. And so this, I think, points to the, the, the curiosity that can reveal something completely unexpected. 
if we're looking for something, we're likely to find it. And if we're looking for something, we're likely not to see something that we're not looking for. And so this is again the the place of investigation that has no agenda for finding anything, but is more willing to be curious about, okay, what's here in the middle of depression? To have the confidence to let depression get as big as it wants to get. Courage. This practice takes courage. And that uh, the word courage is also a translation of the Pali term virya, which uh, is usually translated as energy. But it's also translated as courage. And to me, this speaks to the the energy that we have to keep, you know, the, the energy of our practice, which is keep meeting experience, come back over and over again. Sometimes it takes courage to do that. How do you follow sleepiness without falling asleep three or four times in a row? After you fall asleep, nod off. It says nod off once or twice. Is there a momentum there that can't be broken? So here I would say it depends, as so often is the case with experience. We need to be curious about what's actually happening, how can mindfulness meet it, and uh, go from there. And so if this, um, I would say that if you're trying to pay attention to sleepiness and you find that you're there for a long time, that you wake up when the bell rings, that probably you should take some action. You know, go for a brisk walk now because the bell has rung. Or if you find yourself really, you know, really sleeping and that, you know, the, I mean, the great thing about sitting practice, those of you sitting, and if you're sleepy in a chair, I encourage you sitting forward on the chair, not having your back uh, supported because When you fall asleep, you'll drop. And that will wake you up. And then you get to try again. If you're leaning back against the chair, it's pretty easy to end up doing that. And I do know sometimes people can collapse like this and just sleep too. So, you know, if you've got a pretty good balance in your posture, if you're just a little off, you'll, you'll be doing this kind of stuff. So, watching sleepiness. It's not a problem if you nod off. The curiosity is around, can I 
open to the experience of sleepiness itself, you will nod off over and over again. Each time you wake up, each time that happens, you get another opportunity to play with it again. I'll describe, I'll describe one experience I had with this. It was pretty early in my practice. It was really the first time I saw just how powerful it can be to watch sleepiness. But I'll also say that later in my practice, uh, the willingness to explore low energy, dull, sleepy mind states was some of the most powerful practice that I've ever had. Opening me to uh, the possibility of mindfulness in places and mind states that I never would have fathomed it was possible to be mindful. And so it's worth the exploration. So you nod off a couple times. You nod off a lot of times. So this one um, sitting, well, I was at a retreat, a 10-day retreat, and this, this, the um, sleepiness kept descending. And I decided I would just watch it. And uh, no resistance. Now, this is one key about working with sleepiness. You know, if you are resisting sleepiness, so check, first of all, if there's an attitude. If you think it's a problem, and you can know that usually because the sleepiness is really unpleasant when we think it's a problem. So if you think it's a problem, see if you can just let yourself say, okay, you know, you can borrow my confidence and trust that this is a good thing to do. Andrea said this is worthwhile, so I'm not going to resist it. I'm just going to let myself watch the sleepiness and see what happens. So I had gotten to that confidence, and I was just able to, to watch the sleepiness. And the, the good thing, or the a great thing about watching sleepiness, this is a, there's a little bit of a carrot here, because if you're not resisting sleepiness, it feels really good. It's very pleasant. Really, really pleasant. Both body, body gets all soft and heavy and like, whew, relaxed. The mind starts going into these nice like wave oscillations, feels pretty good. And then, okay, that woke me up. Gave me a little energy too. Okay, I'll do it again. Just relax and be present for the process of the body falling asleep. I got woken up many times in that sitting. It was a 45-minute sitting, I think. By the end of that sitting, I realized, first of all, that that sitting had been incredibly mindful. The moments of, was about the only time I wasn't mindful. So it was like, you know, 20, 30, 40 seconds of the sitting when the mind dropped into sleep, that mindfulness got lost. The rest of the time, the mind was tracking the experience. Really, uh, it was like the most fun sitting. It was so fun, feeling those great, pleasant experiences. By the end of that sitting, the mind 
would know, could know. It's like just watching it happen over and over and over again. By the end of that sitting, the mind knew it was about ready to fall asleep. It knew it was going to drop before dro- it dropped. And with, with that reco- recollection or that awareness, all I had to do was that the, my body had kind of slumped. You know, it was like doing this. All I had to do was like straighten up my spine. That gave me enough energy to just do it again. I didn't try to straighten up my spine and stay in an alert state. I just straightened up my spine. That gave the body some energy to watch the process again. So it is possible to watch sleepiness. And if you find yourself asleep for a long time, that's probably not the time to try it. But if you think the thought, if you find yourself thinking the thought, I'm too sleepy to meditate. My guess is that you have enough awareness to be aware that you're sleepy. Because you are aware that you're sleepy. You've verbalized it to yourself. So let yourself notice that. Oh, this is what it's like to be sleepy. I may later in the retreat talk some about how much I've learned from exploring low energy states and... uh, it's quite, it's quite, quite profound. I had basically a two-year stretch of my practice where the mind just kind of collapsed into low energy. Just pretty much every sitting I was sleepy, sleepy, dull. It's like I had no choice but to learn from it. And it was quite a deepening of my practice to, to, not resist it, but to kind of align myself with, oh, this is what's happening. This too can be met with mindfulness. Are all defenses delusional? So pretty much any mind that has any resistance or any holding, any protectiveness, those are the ones that defensiveness brings to mind in this moment. The delusion there is that there's something that needs to be resisted some belief that something needs to be resisted, some belief that something needs to be held on to or protected. And so, yes, every, every mind that has a sense of some problem associated with it, has delusion in it.
often it's a delusion of a sense of I or me needing to be protected, defended. And it's interesting. I mean, this is, it, it touches a kind of a paradox or a little confusion maybe around that uh, idea of a sense of self. Because it seems so natural to, uh, you know, defend oneself against harm. And it is. It is natural. So there's a, uh, how do I say this? In a situation where you are in imminent harm or imminent danger, there's the possibility that the system, the mind, the body will respond with wisdom to get you out of that situation without a needing, a feeling that, oh, this is a problem, I need to do something about this, and it's just, this is what the system does, takes you away from that harm. My, My intuition is that this is somehow, you know, something like this is how the Buddha went through life, not feeling defensive, not feeling like he needed to protect himself, and yet taking care of himself. The description of a mind that is free is free from greed, aversion, and delusion. But the Buddha describes it, experiences no mental pain or grief. A mind that is not swayed by anything. No mental pain or grief. To me, that's an inspiration certainly not a reality. (laughs) And yet I see that if I am defending, if I am, there is a feeling of defensiveness. There's something to look at, something to watch. I'll say this, um, just just came into my mind. Um, You know, we might think, isn't it just natural to defend our lives, defend our our being, or you know, isn't that isn't that just part of being human? Wouldn't that be hardwired somehow? And I'd say, you know, in the evolutionary perspective, it's certainly the case for little single-celled creatures to kind of automatically pull back from a noxious environment. So you know, not not a lot of uh, choice in the matter there, just a 
kind of a natural instinct, an instinctual hardwired movement towards protection. What I understand from some of the reading I've done in neuroscience, neurobiology, and one book in particular gave me this, the book. The book is a great, it's great, at least the first three quarters of it. I haven't read the whole thing. Um, and I have some, some issues with it because it's pretty clear he doesn't understand that it's possible to really watch the mind and understand the mind. <laughs> but uh, the book is called Self Comes to Mind. Basically, the evolution of the sense of self He's looking at the evolution of the sense of self through bi- in biological terms. And the author's name is Antonio Damasio. He points out that in single-celled creatures and kind of in the evolutionary range, there's that movement to protect, to have well-being in our system. And he said, but in our system, our system is so complicated that uh, our, ner- our nervous system has been designed to, uh, to operate very efficiently. And he said, there's a map in our brains of our being, of our system, of our basically of our body. There's a map in our brains. And our nervous system is designed to protect the map because that's more efficient. The nervous system, I mean, to protect the body, the signal has to go way down there and back. Much more complicated. So the system is designed to protect the map. That's kind of amazing. The map is a construct of our minds. It's not the actual being. And so this protective mechanism makes mistakes. It's not perfect. Um, Damasio calls that uh, map in the mind, he calls that the proto-self, the beginning of that sense of self he fully, uh, his, his research fully confirms what the Buddha has been saying for 2,600 years. A sense of self is constructed by our minds. And so that feeling of defending and protecting, it's not hardwired, but it's deeply conditioned. It's very deeply conditioned. And so, Of course, of course those defenses are there. At a very deep level, those defenses are there. A clinging to protectiveness. And in my own experience, the practice isn't about trying to somehow uh, deny those defenses or, or say, oh, those are delusional, I shouldn't pay attention to them. But more, no, oh, this is defensiveness, this is how it feels watching it, seeing how it's constructed, seeing what it's trying to defend. Sometimes it's just trying to defend an idea when we watch it. 
we see it's just an idea that it's defending. Some sense of, oh, I'm, I'm the kind of person that everybody has to look up to or, you know, something. And that's what we're so defensive about. So many of our defenses are way uh, more optional than those kind of defenses about our life, our human being, our body. And yet, in any case, when you feel defensiveness, wow, this is defensiveness. Report back to the mothership. This is what it's like when they feel defensive. Sometimes I'm able to detect a thought before it is fully formed and I don't know the content yet. When practicing open awareness, what do we do in such an instance? We're watching open awareness The mind sees the beginning of a thought and because it sees it, sometimes that happens. It's like, it's like, it's like just this little um, empty balloon bubble, cartoon bubble. We see this movement towards a thought and because we've watched that, the the momentum in that direction just collapses. You've witnessed the beginning of a thought. You've seen basically the non-arising of that thought. What happens next? You don't have to go back and figure out what it would have been thought, what the thought might have been. You don't have to do any investigation about, you know, where it came from or It's just, oh, that happened. What is the experience as you see that happen? It's it's in the terrain of seeing something disappear. Watching the disappearance of a thought that had started to form. It's ending. We're we're watching something end. That is a, a... we're used more we're more used to watching things begin watching them arise and so that's a great opportunity to see what happens as something ends and it takes a little bit of trust it's like well what where do i what happens where do i land where does it, where does the mind land as something is vanishing sometimes that kind of uh if we, if we can just follow and watch the disappearance of something, it opens our mind into some unfamiliar terrain, uh, states or experiences or uh, that, you're, that are not so common or not so, f- not so familiar to us, that we're not so um, comfortable with. Sometimes as something's ending like that, Something else just arises, 
and the mind naturally attends to that. That's all you need to do. It's like, what's, what's next? What's obvious? Could you please speak a bit more about 13 trillion mind moments per second and the ramification to our practice and how it was determined? (laughs) I understand that people saw this through very deep concentration practice. I've never experienced anything that precise, but there are is a um, a teacher who claims to be able to see these mind moments, who's alive today, Pawak Sayadaw. So, um, you know, I actually, I actually trust in some way that, and it's 17 trillion. <laughs> 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 the 17 is, is key. I, the trillion piece, <laughs> I'm not so sure of, but... <laughs> There's something about 17 specific, uh, different little kind of like advertence and seeing, and I don't know, it's like uh, moments of connecting to experience. It's, uh, there's 17 moments that, that, that they've clearly identified. And that I really, I do, I do see, I do, I do believe that they, that 17 I, I, I take, that the trillion, billion, million, I don't know. <laughs> It's a lot. Let's just say it's a lot. This is um, a teaching in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma. And my understanding is that the Abhidhamma was written after the Buddha's lifetime. There is a story that the Buddha taught the Abhidhamma to his mother in uh in one of the heaven realms and came back down and told Shariputra his teaching and that that's how it was transmitted. But scholars believe that it's a later, a later um, text, hundred, couple hundred years after the Buddha. In terms of the um, the importance of the ramification. Partly, I mention that because there's often people talk about, you know, the the that in a moment where attention is connecting to something, that attention only connects to one thing at a time. And in our normal conception of attention and time, that's a pretty big chunk of time. You know, it's a second or two. We think of, you know, the mind moves to something, connects to it. And, and so if we think that we can only pay attention to one thing at a time, and what we're, we're sitting here, and it's like we're seeing so many things happen at the same time. We figure either we're doing it wrong or this can't be right. I must not be really seeing very clearly because if I were seeing very clearly, I would see that the mind was paying attention to only one thing at a time. 
And so I, I bring this in, this teaching about the 17 trillion mind moments, to point out that most of the time our minds are seeing things at a much broader level than this moment-to-moment kind of experience. And that if indeed it is true, and you know, at this mind moment level, I can imagine that attention picks up on one thing at a time. And, and, if, and if we're seeing, like I'm looking out at this room and I'm seeing an amazing amount of information and probably it's very quickly time sliced. You know, attention is seeing this blip and that blip and that blip and that blip. 17 trillion blips in the blink of an eye. But I'm not able to see all of that. So to me, it feels like I'm experiencing a lot of things at the same time. So I bring that in to, uh, to point out that, that this style of practice in particular, the open awareness practice, the encouragement to um, be aware of awareness, to step back and know that we know that creates the conditions for uh, a much broader kind of awareness that knows many things at the same time. You see the arising of a thought and understand how it connects to something that you've seen and the projection into the future all in a moment. You see it all. And you don't have to try to slow it down or, or see only one thing at a time. One of the other um, practices that has been taught in our tradition, the Mahasi practice, where the, the tendency is to pay attention to one object, and if you find your attention wanders, you let go of that object and pick up on another object. That cultivates the conditions for more seeing one thing at a time. And so it's different meditation technology. So the, this meditation technology that we're playing with here creates the conditions for us to see many things at the same time. So as I said, I bring in this teaching to kind of shake up the idea that uh, somehow that's a problem if we're seeing many things at the same time. And the more continuous mindfulness gets, the more detail it will see. And it's time to stop. So thank you for your questions. (laughs) 